Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show on your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. This first part of our program today, we'll be talking with Dan Baum, who is a writer, author of the book Smoke and Mirrors, The War on Drugs and the Politics of Failure. His most recent book is Gun Guys, A Road Trip. Uh, he wrote the current front page story in Harper's Magazine, Legalize It, How to Win the War on Drugs. Uh, and of course, when he, many of us read that first quote at the top of the article, it just made us all jump up. And uh, we're lucky to have him with us today. Dan, welcome. Good to have you with us on the show. Thank you very much. And you all can join us here as the conversations unfold at 410-319-8888. You can tweet us at Mark Steiner, comment on our Facebook pages, send us an email to talk at steinershow.org, but 410-319-8888. So, Dan, um, I've enjoyed your writing over the years. This is really a great article. Of course, what struck me is what struck everybody um, is when you wrote in the article near the top, in, in interviewing, interviewing Mr. Ehrlichman, who was chief of staff for President Richard Nixon and, was, of course, went to prison for his, for his, his, particip- his participation in Watergate, the quote being, the Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black by beginning the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily. We could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Do we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. That's pretty powerful stuff. As it was. When I, and and <laughs> after that interview, I ran to a telephone booth, um, which is what we had in those days, right. <laughs> and uh, called my wife, and I said, I got the book. I, um, and it changed the way I wrote the book, and it, frankly, it changed the way I've worked ever since. That interview... I wrote about this interview in a book called The Moment that was published a few years ago uh-huh. about life-changing moments that writers and artists have experienced, and this was definitely one of them. This changed the way I've worked ever since, and it certainly changed the book that I wrote. And, and, and so, But it's a great way to lead this off because um, I, I think that the knowing the history of this is important for all of us to wrestle with the future and, and, when, and the whole transparency of government and the rest. But I think that one of the most important things on this article for me, and I just if you could begin here, um, is that how things have switched with the international efforts to legalize or control usage of drugs, especially in Latin American and some European countries, how that's shifted over the last 20 years and why. Uh, let me just start there because there has been an interesting shift. There has. Um, you know, we're, we as a species, you know, we're, we're, we're stupid but we're not terminally stupid. Uh, sooner or later, we get a clue. And this enforcement-heavy uh, approach of dealing with drug abuse has been going on for half a century, and it obviously has not worked and has created many more problems than it solves. And little by little, we're waking up to it. You know, Latin America, some astounding developments there uh, in the United States. And um, the United Nations is about to meet a special session on the General Assembly special session on the drug problem in April, and good things could happen there. Um, you know, it's it's going to take a while to turn this battleship around, but uh, what it, what is happening is it has been normal for the past half century to think about drug abuse as a police problem, I and mean, that's just how we've dealt with this. This is a, this is a law enforcement issue. Um, and what is beginning to take hold is, no, this is a health issue, and it's a human rights issue. And that's a good change. And it's going to take a while. It's not happening everywhere yet. There are some countries that are resisting it heavily. Um, but it is starting to happen. Now, I, we have a tweet in, and let me just read this tweet, Reparations Act tweeted in, uh, sure, now that thousands of black lives and families have been destroyed, how about reparations for their destruction? Which is a really good quote, a, a comment, and I think when Neil gets here, we'll, we'll wrestle with that a bit, because I think that is a, a piece that people are talking about. Uh, because, I mean, this war just has just destroyed so many lives. And and it, we need to say, you know, that that quote from Ehrlichman is shocking, and it is, it is fun to heap more blame on Richard Nixon. Um, I'm a tax-and-spend Democrat, lifelong, 
And I got to say, the Democrats are as responsible for the drug war right. as the Republicans. It has been as useful to Democratic administrations as to Republicans. Frankly, we have all benefited um, in in we kind of middle class folks who are who don't live in the ghetto, who have not been thrown in prison. Um, demonizing drugs has served us as well, and my book is a lot about that. Um, and and we all have to look ourselves in the eye, in the mirror, and say, you know, why have we done this, and how can we undo it? I think one of the most, to me, one of the most important pieces of this particular article that you wrote um, is how this will not be an easy transition. If, if, if for argument's sake, you get the majority of people on the side of decriminalization or legalization and the differences you outline as well in the, in the piece. But I think the most important kind of lesson here that you're trying to describe and, and discuss is that there'll be a lot of bumps in the road. If you look at the examples of Portugal, other countries, this is not a, a just an easy step in how it may be even more difficult to translate into, into the American political world just because of how we structure ourselves in this country. But that, I think that's an important piece of this, the most important piece for me. There's, you know, there are, there are, as I say, there are going to be a million choices to make, and we're not going to get them all right on the first try. Um, and when we say legalize, we need to de- delineate between decriminalize and legalize. Right. And even legalize is an inadequate term because you really need to say legalize and regulate. Um, you can't just, I'm arguing in this piece not to decriminalize, which is, usually means laying off the users and the, and the, you know, the small possessors and the users and going after the, the organized crime that uh, you know, distri- grows and imports and distributes these drugs. I'm saying no. Declare the drugs are legal and then regulate them. And there's a million ways to do that. Uh, you could either have a government monopoly or you could have a regulated free market. Um, each has its advantages. These, these are discussions to, to begin having. But we need to recognize we're not going to get it right on the first try. And Colorado, which is where I am from, legalized marijuana. It was the first state in the, in the nation to, to legalize and begin regulating the market for marijuana. Um, and it's working pretty well. It's not perfect. Um, we're still ironing out bumps, but it's working pretty well, and it can serve as a model. One of the things that I think that was really interesting to, to kind of look at as a model, you, you talked about when we got rid of prohibition and the Rockefeller Commission came out talking about there should be a government monopoly, in a sense, yes. on the distribution of alcohol. Yes. That we didn't take up, obviously. But that, 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 there you juxtapose what, what could have been and what might be. Right. And what Rockefeller argued was that unless you take, really take the profit out of alcohol, you're going to have powerful interest, uh, it being in the, in the interest of powerful corporations that people drink too much. And in fact, that is what has happened, that um, a small percentage of people drink a, a, the vast majority of alcohol. So binge drinking and alcoholism is essential to the alcohol business. And we do not want to repeat that when it comes to things like cocaine and heroin, if we are going to legalize and regulate. So now would be the time to consider if we are going to legalize and regulate, instead of turning this into a free market regulated industry, having it be a, a function of government to distribute, figure out a way to distribute and price these very dangerous substances. When I argue that the way to win the war on drugs is to legalize it all, it is not because I am arguing that these are not dangerous substances. I am saying precisely because they are, we need to do this a lot smarter. Um, And I would argue marijuana is a dangerous substance. It is a substance with a high potential for abuse um, and because it is especially modern marijuana, which is so strong, because of that, we need to be smarter about how we let this substance move through society. And what we've been doing has not worked and has created more problems than it solved. One of the things in, in terms of having it be more of a state monopoly was, was looking again back at the Rockefeller Commission in 1933, which suggested that, that um, we ban all advertising. 
that that would be a that that would be a way to think about these substances as well. Uh, I would I would argue that's probably a good idea. Ban all advertising. Um, private industry could produce these drugs, but when it comes to actually distributing them, perhaps we need to get over this idea that government can do nothing right, and let this be a function of government. So now wh- in Colorado, marijuana stores exist. They are private. They're regulated. It's quite a thing to walk into a marijuana store in Colorado. It's it's very civilized, it's very controlled, it's very organized, um, but the system is not perfect there. And Colorado's experience is instructive. So it, it, taking that, I mean, one of the, one of the things you, you, one of the people you quote here um, is, that I'm blocking his first name, Sterling from the Criminal Justice... Eric Sterling. Yeah, right, right, who's been on the show before, from the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation. Where the quote is, people thinking about the utopian endgame, but the trans- transition will be unpredictable. I mean, that, I mean, this is – let's talk about that unpredictability. I mean, because people in every culture just across humanity have always found or tried to find a way to alter their consciousness at some level. Right. Right? Um, and as you point out, 20 percent of, of, of binge of, – of, uh, of, of people who use alcohol are binge drinkers, but they have over half the money going to the alcohol industry comes from that 20 percent. It could be the exact same thing with people who use any drug from marijuana to heroin. Right. Right? Right. Which so, is not some, – yeah, that is not something we want to see happen. Right. So but – that, but that all lends itself to the unpredictability of what would happen once we legalize it, no matter whether it's a free market system or a monopoly. That is true, and there are there are inherent risks. But we know that what we have been doing by trying to manage drug abuse with the police, we know first of all it does not work. The drugs are cheaper than ever, and 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 drug abuse is high, and we know we have created a tremendous number of pathologies. I mean, right now one of every eight African American men in the United States cannot vote and never will be able to vote because of what's called felony disenfranchisement. If you have been convicted of a felony, you lose your right to vote forever. Now, this year, when you're thinking about the black vote, when you're looking at statistics on the black vote, keep that number in mind. One in eight black men, and most of those have to do with drug war conviction. That is a serious downside (laughs) to drug prohibition. The violence, the corruption. Um, we know this. Uh, and little by little, people are starting to say, maybe there's a better way. And that's it's an important point here because in communities like the one from which we're broadcasting, Baltimore, Maryland, um, there were over 344, at least 344 deaths last year, mostly associated with the, gun tra- with, with the drug trade in this mm-hmm. city. Right. Um, and and this is compounded across the country. And when you looked at the example of Portugal, which has done an incredibly powerful job at decolonization and controlling, the violence is always still there because the drugs are still illegal, illegal right? Right. So th- th- this is where the difference is. You, you can decriminalize, like we've done with marijuana to an extent, and other drugs are debating right now in the state legislature here in the state of Maryland, but that will not take away the violence nor the drug gangs. That's the problem with decriminalization. And decriminalization is often seen as a halfway measure. You know, we're not going to go all the way to legalization. Let's just decriminalize. It really doesn't get the job done, unfortunately, um, because you leave in place the criminal networks that manufacture, grow, um, import, and distribute these substances. And frankly, they're too dangerous to leave in the hands of these. These are bad people. You know, and and we're giving them a tremendous amount of power and wealth, um, and I don't like it, and a lot of people don't. I mean, you you when you have in your article here that um, that this whole war on drugs has created a, your quote is a, a, a created a class of genuine bad guys, pushers, gangbangers, smugglers, and killers, and I might add in some instances the police themselves. Yes. Um, and so and and that's very real. This is a byproduct. Those. This violence is a byproduct of the war on drugs. Right. So most of, most of what we don't like about drugs really comes from the prohibition against drugs, not from the drugs themselves. So let's talk for a moment about about the different ways you envision the possibilities of how this might work. I mean, people can easily see, I think, um, uh, the decriminalization or legalization of marijuana. 
Um, there's a referendum as you write in Massachusetts coming up, other places to talk about the legalization of marijuana. Right. Um, so people have a, an easier time of figuring what that might be like because people think of, more of akin to alcohol. Um, argue that one way or the other. But 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 when you're talking about methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin, the opioids, um, that, that 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 people get really confused and worried about what that would mean in terms of legalization, how that could even function. Well, one way to phrase it is, who do you want in charge of the distribution and market of these substances? Criminals or doctors? That's one way to phrase it. Um, right now, we, we, we've ceded all of the power in this to the worst people, and we're making them very rich. And I think it's whack. And luckily, this can be argued to, to both sides of, of the political spectrum. You can argue it to liberals as, you know, we've we got to stop putting so many black men in prison. Uh, civil liberties, the, the infringement on civil liberties is terrible, etc. And you can argue it to conservatives as this is a budget buster and it is unwarranted government intrusion into our personal lives. Um, there is a way to talk about this stuff that gets us out of the dead end. And that's what I'm hoping my article will begin to, to prompt. So one of the issues, though, uh, I find really an interesting uh, point here in this, because, again, in Colorado, it's, they, they're taxing marijuana. It hasn't gone as far as they wanted to now, but as more counties allow it to be sold, the taxes will increase. But, but the whole idea, as you point out here in your article, of, of taxing drugs, figuring out how to license, standardize, inspect, distri- distribute, and tax, but taxing especially, is not so easy. No. I mean, so this is a very, the idea of decriminalization and taxation is a very tough nut to crack. It is. It is. But first of all, we'd be saving a lot of money not incarcerating, you know, a huge percentage of the population and not having our police taking half their time running around trying to bust drug dealers. Um, so, you know, the, yes, it would. this would take a lot of time and brain power and energy and money, but we'd be saving it elsewhere. Um, but, you know, taxation is a blunt instrument. That's why the, the argument for a government monopoly is strong, because if you have a regulated free market, the only way the government can adjust the price of the drugs, and price is the most powerful way to discourage drug use. Um, the only way to do it is taxation, and taxation is a cumbersome process. It takes forever. Government legislatures hate raising taxes. But if you, if if it is up to the state health authority to distribute these drugs, they can adjust the price every day if they want. And pricing is a tough thing because you want it high enough to discourage use, but not so high that you drive people back to the black market. Um, right. So you 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 want maximum flexibility. The other advantage if I may, to beginning with a, with a government monopoly is it is politically much easier down the road to go from that to a regulated free market than it is to shut off a regulated free market and have the government take it over. In, in the United States, in the post-Reagan United States, you ain't going to get that done. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of issues here in our country. I mean, because we, we have 50 states. Right. Right. Each right. with their own kind of regulatory agency, each with their own taxation, each kind of tackling this marijuana question and this legalization of drugs question, decriminalization in a different way. Yes, and right. That, and, and, that, and that's a good thing. That's how the states are supposed to operate, as laboratories. And, you know, Colorado will do it one way, Washington will do it another, Alaska will do it another, and we'll see which works better. And I think this is actually moving along quite well. Um, it needs to, you know, we need to get this done. But um, I'm, I'm thrilled with what has happened in the four states in the District of Columbia because we can learn from those. You know, we're Americans, dude. We are good at things like regulation and taxation. Those fall well into our skill set. Thank God what doesn't fall into our skill set is naked repression. <laughs> we're not good at that. Um, so... We should, we should go with our strengths. We know how to regulate. We know how to do public health. We know how to tax. We don't know how to be 
jackbooted thugs. And we've been trying to do that for half a century. We're not good at it. It hasn't achieved the goals we want. And we've caused a tremendous amount of misery and grief and heartache and violence um, and loss of civil liberties trying to do it. But it would also be very difficult, I think, in this country to talk about having a state monopoly. Um, you know, I mean, you can look at certain states like New Hampshire, others with that, that control alcohol by having only in state-run stores other than beer right. and wine, right? Right. But but it's, it would be yeah. very difficult to make that monopoly seem to work in this country given the conservative li- liberal left forces at, at war with each other, especially well, now with the war that's going on. Well, there are the states that have state liquor stores, right? And that And that is a good model to look at. Um, they are now called weak monopoly states because the, the, the state monopolies are weaker there. Um, most states do have liquor advertising, even if they have uh, state stores. Um, but in the in the in the states with state liquor stores, the incidence of drunk driving and alcoholism are lower than in the free market alcohol state. So we might say, yeah, let's try that and. You know, and as you say, it might go state by state. So what, what do you – I'm curious what you see as you look at this, um, uh, where, where you see this going, where our lessons may be. When you look at countries like Switzerland, Germany, and Netherlands that you write about uh, that, that have made heroin legally available to addicts, mm-hmm. government-run dispensaries, I mean it's working in those places. It is working. In right. But yeah. whenever we have this discussion on the air or in the community, that's the biggest problem. That's the hurdle for people to logically, intellectually and emotionally get over. The idea that the government is going to be able to dispense heroin and cocaine to people, not all of whom, but many of whom will be addicts. But, you know, we are at a volatile moment. OK, the two parties have collapsed, um, especially the Republican Party has co- has collapsed. Um, where we are at a somewhat of an anything goes moment, and I think this is a good time to begin talking about doing things smarter. And um, it's hard to make the argument, people, that this what we're doing now is working. I have been hearing from people who have lost children to overdoses, and since my article came out. And half of them are saying right on, and half of them are saying shame on you. Uh-huh. Okay? And that's because I'm suggesting that these things be legal. Now, I would argue that when these things are legal and dispensed in an orderly fashion and priced properly, and an, you know, if an addict has to come in to get his shot, that is an opportunity to intervene, to discuss, to, you know, to... Um, work on other aspects of the addict's life, I think it would work in the United States the way it works in Switzerland, and it would reduce the incidence of addiction, and it would certainly reduce a lot of the pathologies that go along with addiction, such as sharing dirty needles. Um, so um, I, I actually think that the people who have written to me and said, shame on you for suggesting such a thing, they're, in, they're misinformed and they're incorrect. And while I feel for them, I think they need to open their minds a bit, and that's a slow process. Um, but I think we can, we can get this going, um, especially if we look at what has happened with marijuana in the few states that have legalized it. I think, I think they can show us the way. They can show us how it can work, and they can show us the pitfalls to avoid. So very quickly before we, we end, what, so I'm, what you just said, I'm curious what you have learned from places like Colorado and Washington, places that have attempted to do this. Uh, as I say, I live in Colorado. Right, right. Um, and it's an amazing thing that, that marijuana has just become no big deal. In fact, teenagers are smoking less marijuana. It's no longer transgressive. It's like, oh, hell, my parents smoke it. How cool can it be? Right? <laughs> um, so uh, it's just, it's, it has become kind of one less thing to argue about, one less thing to fight about, one less thing for the cops to have to deal with. Um, it is we are managing it in an orderly, intelligent, upright, outspoken fashion, and it feels cool. I am proud to be a citizen of Colorado when I think about this. I'm not much of a pot smoker. I've smoked pot once since we've legalized. I hadn't smoked pot in years, um, but 
once, maybe twice. Um, <laughs> but right. you know, but I you know I drink a beer most days too, and right. um, you know I'm I am not a problem pot smoker. It's no big deal that I've you know rediscovered smoking pot, and it does not seem to be a a health problem in Colorado. And it's been, but you know, the tax revenue has been less than was expected. You know, there have been bumps. Um, and there have been people doing stupid things, growing it in their houses, you know, burning their houses down by stringing extension <laughs> cords together. Right. You know, there have been problems with it. But as I say, we can examine Colorado, Washington, Alaska, the District of Columbia, see what works, what doesn't work. And as, this, as more states do this, they'll do it smarter. They'll do it with more and more information, and they'll do it smarter and smarter. And then, God willing, the, the federal government will get in on this. And take marijuana off the schedule of dangerous drugs, you know, legalize it, uh, and allow for the orderly production, import, distribution, with with the goal being to to do the maximum to protect the public health. And right now, that is not the first priority, and um, and we need to get there. And then, and then we can start thinking about the more dangerous drugs. That's down the road. I, I, it was a great article. Uh, I really appreciate you agreeing to come on the program to talk about it, uh, legalize it all, how to win the war on drugs, the cover story in, in uh, this issue of Harper's Magazine. Uh, we will uh, link to it on our, on our website at steinershow.org. You can get that one free article from Harper's unless you're already subscribed to them, so you can check the article out uh, as well um, if you, as this conversation on, on podcast. Dan Baum, who's author of the book Smoke and Mirrors, War on Drugs and the Politics of Failure, his most recent book, Gun Guys, uh, a, road, a road trip. Uh, Dan, th- thanks so much for the work you do, and thank you for taking the time with our listeners today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Take care. We're going to be taking a short break, and when we come back, we are going to be joined by Neil Franklin to continue this conversation from the perspective of our communities here and law enforcement. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, right here on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA. 88.9 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Uh, and we're going to continue this conversation we had about Legalize It All, How to Win the War on Drugs from the Dan Baum article. We have in the studio with us Neil Franklin, former Baltimore and Maryland State Police Officer uh, for 35, three, 34 years. 34 years. And now as Executive Director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Uh, and good to have you in the studio, man. Welcome. Thanks for coming in. Man, glad to be here, Mark. Thanks for having me. And y'all do join. I really want to know what you think about this conversation about legalizing drugs. They take it beyond decrim and just legalize. What does that mean to you? Does that make sense to you or not? Um, and um, and how would that work? Please bring your thoughts here. 410-319-8888. Um, and there's a number here. You can write to us at talk at org by email. Tweet us at Mark Steiner, 410-319-8888. Um, we just got this question from a caller who couldn't stay, had to run, uh, but said, since Congress is the entity that has to approve D.C.'s legalization law, isn't the de facto federal legalization of marijuana, or at least federal government saying that other states should be able to do it as well? No. No. Um, so, I mean, if the question is, you know, basically the control that the federal government has in all of this, according to the Tenth Amendment, none, as far as what the, as far as what the states do. As a matter of fact, that's how we ended alcohol prohibition, state by state, decided to no longer force the federal prohibitions for alcohol. Maryland never, ever embraced it. And a lot of people don't know that. I wish we had never embraced the drug war. But um, so according to the 10th Amendment, each state is permitted to do whatever they want to do as it relates to drugs and how they manage drugs. They just can't transport them across state lines. So interstate transportation of these products is where the, the federal government really has, you know, authority. So now, before we go on, you have a, a gig here tonight at Morgan State, right? Yeah, I do. Um, so it, it's going to be great. It's going to it's the uh, Public Safety Summit, the fifth annual for North Baltimore. It's going to be at the Student Center here at Morgan State University, and the wonderful Mayor Kurt Schmoke will be there, and I get to join him on a day. So that's and, great and to talk about this issue. Who a man was pilloried 
when he was mayor, when he first opened his mouth saying we, we should decriminalize marijuana in the city of Baltimore. If we had only paid attention and listened and, and done the research and really looked into it deeply back then, we wouldn't be in this mess right now. We tried to protect him on the air. It didn't do much good, though. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, folks, 410-319-8888. Let, let's go um, to the phones. Is that right? 410-319-8888. Join us here with your thoughts on legalization and decriminalization of drugs in our culture and our society. Kevin, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, fellas. Good morning. I just want to make a quick comment about uh, the Constitution and, and, and how marijuana ends up being illegal and a criminal thing to possess when I really don't understand the reference to the Constitution in which it's prohibited. Well, it's not the Constitution. It's not, it's, right, it's not prohibited by way of the Constitution. The only drug that ever was was alcohol, and they, you know, that was the 18th Amendment, which they uh, uh, repealed in, in 1933. But drugs today, these drugs, heroin, cocaine, marijuana, no, it's not a constitutional issue as, as it relates to prohibition. Um, we never passed an amendment making it illegal. It's all laws that are coming about by way of our legislature right. at the federal level and the state levels. Because even heroin at one point was legal in America. I, I actually have a letter opener from like 1910 from uh-huh. Bear. From Bear, Bear uh-huh. says aspirin, heroin, and I mean on the on the uh, on the letter opener when they were actually selling heroin yeah. legally. You, look, you think heroin's cheap today? $2.85 an ounce back then is what you're talking about. <laughs> so talk a bit about how, how this article about Dan Bauman, how that might actually look and work in a place like Maryland. We, we've seen Dan Morheim attempting to push the issue mm-hmm. further uh, with the decriminalizing um, um, the uh, having amounts of now illegal drugs, no matter what the drug is. Mm-hmm. But Just, that's, again, an incremental step. So one of the... He said many poignant things, and I think one that really stuck with me is that um, when he was referencing Portugal, is that decriminalization doesn't get the job done. You know, it's a halfway point because it leaves the illegal market in place, and that's where the violence is. That's where the corruption is. That's where still many arrests come from because many of the people who are selling are addicted and are selling to finance their own habits. Um, so it leaves in place many, many problems. So what we're doing in Annapolis, and I applaud Dan Morheim for his efforts to move this issue forward in the area of decriminalization, in his, in his effort to move it from a place of criminalization to health with those four pieces of legislation to dem- decriminalize possession of all drugs uh, for emergency room on-demand treatment, um, for polymorphone assisted treatment, which is basically heroin assisted treatment, and uh, the other ones for uh, supervised injection facilities. And these are all in the areas, for the most part, of decriminalization, not a regulated market for these drugs. But we are moving it from a place of criminal justice into health. So, do, th- do those bills have any chance at all? Um, or are they, are they going through? What's, what's happening? Realistically, this year, Probably not, and we didn't expect them to. Is you know we and, and and our organization Leap, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, worked very closely with Dan on these pieces of legislation, and we're going to be working with him in the future. And um, we didn't. Our main goal here was to start a serious conversation in Annapolis, and actually, it became more of a conversation than what we anticipated. So it's it's doing better than what we what we expected. So Theodore tweeted in, um, can you imagine what Lexington Market would look like if they legalized drugs in Baltimore? Oh, yeah, it looked, mo- it looked whole much, a whole lot better than what I don't think that's what he meant. But let, I think he was thinking the opposite in that tweet, it feels like. Yeah, I get that. And that's what most people, unfortunately, because of the fear-mongering had, that has been going on for decades, they believe things would be worse. Absolutely not, because once you move into this place, and, and as, as Dan said, you know, turning this over to our doctors, who do you want managing this in our streets and in our neighborhoods? Do you want criminals and organized crime and the cartels, or do you want doctors? Okay, so I personally would prefer doctors. Right, maybe I'm crazy or something, but I would prefer doctors. Moving it into a place of health. 
where we can then start moving these resources to deal with the many people that you currently see today in Lexington Market who are strung out, getting them into a place of health. You see, it's not just about the addiction. Many of those, if not most of those people, are also dealing with serious mental health issues. You know, we opened up our, the doors to our mental health institutions back in the 1980s, and we just started turning people out into the streets, and they ended up in our criminal justice system. We were supposed to have community so, mental health centers, which were never funded. Absolutely. That didn't happen. So let's do the right thing here. It's not – don't get me wrong, and I'm sure Dan also doesn't mean the same thing. This is not a panacea. So, But moving it into a place of regulation and control – into the hands of our doctors and healthcare practitioners, it also means that we also have to take those resources from criminal justice that we will be saving, like he said, and now start having community health centers and now, you know, getting these people into the places they need to be and out of Lexington Market, you know, off of Utah Street and off of Packer Street. You know, at the end of the day, it's going to be much, much better if we do the other things that need to be done as well. And that's where we, the people, come into play to force our politicians to do that. We've got a very important election right now in Baltimore. If you're not in a place right now, and I don't mean physically, but if you're not in a place right now, bringing us to the attention of the campaign, to those people running for the office of mayor, and putting this on a front burner, then shame on you. You know, I, I, Don't complain about it. But We've got to do the right things in opening up these centers and moving people who are suffering from health, from these health conditions, into, into the right place. So I, I have a Facebook thing here. We have a caller, um, and I have a question that I also want to get in here about this transition. 410-319-8888 is the number here. Carlos, you're on the air. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Very well. Good morning, Carlos. Good morning. Good. I just I heard a comment that 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 um, one of the guests made regarding addiction, and you know I am a recovering addict, and addiction is addiction. If we allowed um, drug use to, uh, if we allowed drugs to be legalized all around, like heroin, cocaine, that sort of thing, it is not going to change addiction. It would make things worse. First of all, you have to understand that addiction is not about just getting high. It is a symptom of a bigger problem. People, um, just pain, hurt, things that have happened in people's lives sometimes make people feel that drugs are the answer. Um, They, I mean, I have been around people that do drugs. I have seen what it does. Making them legalized all around, unless you had a designated place out of the area where the drugs are sold and people can get high wherever, that's a different story. But you can't control, and, and, I, and I, I listen to politicians a lot of times say about controlling something. The reality is we don't control anything. We don't really know what happens until we go in and, and try it. And I just don't believe that, that um, allowing... Um, drugs to be legalized all the way around. I do agree with marijuana. I think that marijuana should be legalized. I don't see what the big issue of it is. Um, But I just don't see where legalizing heroin and cocaine is going to, it's going to uh, create less of a problem than it it already is. You know, we live in a society where people like to step outside of reality. They don't, we we, we have so many people that just, um, don't like to live in reality that you'll probably find more users and then a less productive society. Oh, I agree with you, Carlos. Let me ask you a question. Um, If you needed heroin today, do you think you could find it? If you wanted it? Are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it it could be found easily. Do you think our kids, kids, no matter the age in our streets, can find it? Easily. And get it and buy it? Listen, listen, when I was using, I could go to any state in this country and within a few minutes find, find okay. drugs. And anyone that uses drugs mm-hmm. can. It's so, not something that, you know, um, it, it's, it's hard to find. It's elusive. And, and coming from someone that has never used drugs and doesn't know the effects, you know, you're really not really uh, capable to speak on, on that. Well, like, uh, I can go to any city and I could tell you where and how I could tell you who's using it. Okay, so Carl, let me, let me let the, 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 the guests jump back in here for a second. <laughs> so... So, and I agree with him, you know, mm-hmm. addiction is, is more than just being about the drug and being addicted to drugs. You know, it, it deals with isolation. It deals with other mal- mental health issues that people have and the challenges of life and wanting to remove themselves from reality. It's so many reasons why people end up using drugs in the conditions that they're in. But at the end of the day, 
these policies of prohibition make more of this stuff available to people despite the age. There are no regulations. There, it's, you know, for our kids, it's not behind a store counter somewhere like alcohol, you know, where you have to display a driver's license and, you know, your proof of age to, to buy something. You know, and not only that, the people selling this stuff on many of the corners in Baltimore City, they recruit our children. The thing is, whether it's prohibition or whether it's a, a system of regulation and control, legalization, this stuff is there for adults to find, to use, or whatever. We've already proven that after decades of prohibition where actually addiction rates have gotten worse, overdose death rates have gotten worse since, like you said, Mark, this stuff was legal at one time, you know. The criminalization, uh, prison populations have increased dramatically. Everything has gotten worse under the policies of prohibition. And you know what? <laughs> it's, it's a huge health issue. But if we end the policies of prohibition, we then start chipping away the many problems within, surrounding the criminal justice system, mass incarceration, corruption, access by our kids. Does it mean our kids won't be able to get it at all? No, but they'll have less access to it. And when they do happen to get it, it'll be safer as far as the quality goes. I don't want anyone to use any of these, any of these substances if they can, you know, not do so. But that's not reality. So... Knowing that people are going to use, depending upon their circumstances, I want the conditions to be as safe as possible. And I don't want our criminal justice system involved in it. You know, there's an, a, an article that came out about a Baltimore, retired Baltimore City officer. Oh, who was a heroin addict while he was on the force. I saw that. Absolutely. Yep. You know, we have police officers that, across this country who are addicted to heroin, who are addicted to cocaine, and many, many, many who are addicted to alcohol, you know, you're not going to stop the use of these drugs. Let's create the best possible environment for the use of these drugs and then work with these individuals from a health care perspective and do what we can to treat the entire person, not just the addiction. Well, I, a couple of things I'm curious about here. I'm, I'm, I do want to get back to the phone show that people are calling in. Um, but, but, but the – I mean, w when you look at the studies of what's happened in Portugal, where it's been decriminalized, well, the violence still is there because the, the, the drugs are illegal, but they've been decriminalized. Right. On the same time, at the same time, uh, HIV and AIDS infections have dramatically fallen. 71% reduction. And um, and as and and the addiction rate has not risen, correct at all, correct. Um, and you're always going to have twenty percent of the population who uses these drugs or drinking will mm -hmm. abuse them. Mm -hmm. That's something that we have to address. Correct. And they're putting a lot of money into in in into treatment, which is the other piece of this. Right. You can't not do this without right. putting a lot of money into treatment. Right. You know something that Dan said when he was on a call in relation to this. Remember, he said that um, the usage rates in Colorado really aren't going up. Right. Because it's no longer, he, he mentioned kids, right, among young people. He says, well, it's, if your parents do it, it can't be too cool, right? <laughs> in, in Portugal, <laughs> in Portugal, middle school and high school kids have had a 22 to 25% reduction in overall drug use, looking at all drugs. And I had an opportunity to speak with a 14-year-old Portuguese girl uh, about a year ago about that, and she said the very same thing. She says, well, since they've made these changes, it, drugs are just ordinary. It's no, it's no big deal, right. you know. And and they teach us in school about the importance of you know staying away from it and, and what drugs actually are and what they do. It's none of this fear mongering stuff. This is what it is. This is what it does. Make a good decision. So L Lorraine uh, Formica um, wrote on her Facebook page. I agree. End the criminalization. Four one zero three one nine eighty eight eighty eight is the number here. And K Blaze, you're on the air. Can you speak a little bit on how to use jury nullification to get this amazing plant back into our backyards? Using jury, <laughs> oh, yeah, jury nullification. Well, actually, that that tends to be happening across question. the country. And what jury, and for the listeners, what jury nullification is? It's when you know you have a jury in a jury trial, uh, for instance, for someone who's before them for selling drugs or using drugs or whatever the case may be. If the jury feels that this really should not be a criminal offense and don't th think that the law should be changed or whatever, they don't have to 
you know, you know, uh, say the person's guilty. You know, they can just say not guilty. And we are experiencing this in juries across the country when it comes to these drug laws and people coming before them. The juries are just refusing to convict people, right. you know, for these crimes that they feel, you know, you don't are want, problematic. You don't want me on your jury if, if it's to put somebody in jail for drugs. I'm going to hang that jury. <laughs> Not going to happen. Depends on what side you're talking about. Right. Are you talking about prosecution or you talking about the defense? <laughs> so, so talk a bit about how you envision this transition to be made. I mean, so, so right now you have um, a lot of people, very violent people, making money on this drug game in our communities. Um, and, it, and it goes across across America like this. Mm-hmm. And the police also part of those violent, violence as well in terms of, of suppressing the, the, the drug use in our communities. So how do you see that transition happening? I mean, how do you see what happens to these young people in the community who are now involved at some level or another in the drug trade, if it was legal, what would then happen? Yeah, because a big part that we very seldom talk about is the economy, the underground economy. It's huge. And he, absolutely. Right? I mean, it pays for heating bills. It pays rent. It pays for food and, and just about clothing, everything else. Everything can, right. So, you know, again, like I said before, you just can't do this in isolation, make this change, ending our drug laws in, in isolation. You've got to bring in the proper resources, make that transition. So you've got to have businesses invest in the community. You've got to have those jobs available. You've got to beef up uh, the educational system in preparation for that. You know, you've got to train folks. You've got there's so many things that you have to do. You have to really pay attention to health. We've got a lot of health issues in, the, in in our communities, nutritional issues, and people, for instance, underestimate the the importance of nutrition. Nutrition is important for our kids in order for them to learn in school, you know. And but so, at every turn, you really just have to look at your communities. For instance, if we want to do this in Baltimore, you have to look at all of the needs of that community, and you have to fulfill all of those needs of that community. So when these when the when the money does dry up from the illicit market because you now moved it into a place of regulation and control and doctors and pharmacies and, and what have you, the people who are left without that income now have a place to go and, and something to do to make money, you know, and that's so you need this robust peace coming into the community. And and again the police now move away from focusing on these these crimes and focus on murder, rape, robbery, crimes against our children, and and so on, uh, domestic violence. And once again, well, maybe not once again, but then they can become guardians of the community and respect it by the people within the community because racial profiling begins to go. But I'm telling you something, Mark, then you have to keep an eye out for something else that we're seeing in places like Chicago. We're starting to move in a direction to criminalize tobacco products, selling Lucy's, you know, fines of $1,000, $2,000 for selling Lucy's. And what happens? You end up in jail. Eric Garner in New York was was killed killed for selling Lucy's, you know, on a street corner. So you have we we the people have to keep an eye out for what's next. Right. And in addition to the Lucy's, they're trying to prohibit menthol products. We know who smokes most of the menthol cigarettes. In, in this country, it's the black community. And when you prohibit menthol cigarettes, you're going to drive it underground. Wait, wait, uh, menthol, what am I menthol cigarette products. Yes, a lot of people don't know this, <clears throat> but they're starting to move policies across this country to prohibit menthol tobacco products. Don't get me wrong. Tobacco kills 400,000 people every year in this country. So I don't want people smoking cigarettes. Right. But we know the most effective way to reduce use is, is treatment and education. That's how we've had such a reduction so far in tobacco use. And we're not sending people to prison yet, you know. But we over the past couple of decades, we reduced use by about 40 percent. We're not sending anybody to jail. But it's starting to happen. So whether it's that or the war on terror, we have to keep an eye out for what's next. Let's get this final call in, 410-319-8888. Pat, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi. Um, I say legalize it. But... It would be hard to do in this city. Lots of people make money on drugs, not just the people on the street. All those programs where they distribute methadone and youth, 
Uh, they make a lot of money, and even this morning on Democracy Now!, they mentioned, uh, I think it was a, a letter from Nixon saying, yeah, let's get right. drugs into the white community and heroin and the black, and then we'll kill them that way. So if that is the case, I don't think anything has really changed. And, and so you do have a big, big problem when you say legalize it and control it. And yeah, you could do it because instead of them flocking down North Avenue or wherever to get their dose or uh, of of controlled substance, right, or going to the street, uh, well, they wouldn't be able to go to the street. So if you could get them in a program and get them to show up every day for a period of time till they go back to the street, if you cut off the streets and you legalize the drugs. At least you wouldn't have people ODing, and you wouldn't have people living around from the effects of methadone, which messes up your joints and makes you unable to walk. Pat, Pat so, you bring up a very good point, because corporate America is, is a big problem here, and you were referring to things like uh, methadone centers, but drug, drug testing. I mean, we have millions of people under the control of parole and probation in different states across this country. Each and every one of them, every so often, have to pee in a cup. You know, and that's a private business. It's a billion-dollar industry. That's just one example of many. Of course, we have the uh, privatized prisons across the country and so on, which is you can invest on Wall Street. Yes, we have that. Pharmaceutical industry doesn't want to see this happen because they make so much money. And we're starting to see that. You know, cannabis can be used as a substitute for opiate pain medications in some cases, depending upon the individual case. And, and you know, the pharma, pharmaceutical industry doesn't want to see that. So corporate America is a, is a very big problem here. But I just want to say this. As it relates to what Pat was saying about, you know, they no longer have to go, those addicted no longer have to go to the street corners, North Avenue, whatever, buy what they need. This is the significance to what, they're doing in Switzerland with the supervised injection facilities in Switzerland where they provide pharmaceutical-grade heroin to those in the programs who come in, you know, you can't beat free, you know, and it's pennies on the dollar, right? right? You can't beat free. So they come in, they get what they need, they go about their business. Many of them work because they don't have the chaotic lifestyle of trying to find the money, stealing, robbing, to pay for their stuff on the street. And as I we have to end here, but as I always said, in my years in the world here, and a lot of my friends were heroin addicts, lots that I grew up with, um, very bright people, and some of them very wealthy people, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, they all did their jobs at the top of their scale while they were doing heroin until it got to them and then the bottom fell out. But so we have this mythology about that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, we'll get to this more. Neil, it's always a pleasure to have you on the Mark, air. Mark, thanks. Always. Thanks again, man. Neil Franklin, uh, 34 years as a law enforcement officer in the city and with the Maryland State Police. Led the biggest drug raid in the history of this country, in the history of this state, on the block many years ago. Lost his best friend as an undercover officer, which one of the reasons he's in the business now, which is as, as executive director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, a national organization. Uh, and we'll put the article up on the website as well. Now, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. The Mark Steiner Show is a production of the Center for Emerging Media. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our interns are Morgan Barber and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Juan Matthews of Clean Cuts. And send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. Podcast The Mark Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care. <laughs>